there's a fair amount to cover. Um, so I think I'm going to go ahead and get started. Hey there, my name's Lily and you're listening to Mindful Admissions, a podcast by Strive to Learn. This episode of Mindful Admissions is a live recording of William at College Info Night, an event that we put on semi-frequently as a sort of virtual college admissions festival. In this session, William introduced senior high school students and attendees to a succinct but pretty comprehensive understanding of financial aid literacy. We're big fans of literacy in general, but when it comes to financial aid, we're especially enthusiastic. Understanding your financial aid options and how to make use of them can be a critical factor in your college decision and subsequent journey, as well as the rest of your life, depending on the financial responsibility that you or your parents decide to take on. Keep listening to hear the details on loans, scholarships, and even financial aid appeals. All right, I think that about covers it. Let's go to William. Hi again. Uh, thank you for joining. Uh, so my name is William. I am uh, William Jackie. That is, I'm uh, academic coordinator for Strive to Learn, and uh, I work as a college counselor uh, for Strive to Learn and, and for the Waldorf School. And, and that's how I know all of you. Um, so I'm going to be presenting a little bit more about uh, what seniors should know about financial aid, especially a few topics that I think are really relevant during the application cycle and in the spring as well. So you know, shortly after you've finished submitting your applications. So um, there's a fair amount to cover. Um, so I think I'm gonna go ahead and get started. A rough title for this presentation is you received your financial aid offers, now what? Now at this point, I know that um, most of you probably haven't received many financial aid offers, if any. You might've started to hear back from your early action applications on November 1st, um, but, uh, but you may not have. So, but you will be getting more um, you know, I promise you will be getting more financial aid offers soon. So what I'm going to cover tonight, um, some of it you'll want to revisit. You want to come back to it later, but these are just some things to, to know looking ahead. Okay, so let's talk about just briefly what we're covering. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about scholarships, um, just kind of uh, some different shading on, on what Rachel discussed in terms of, of merit aid. Also, we'll talk about understanding award letters and offers. So when you look at the uh, typical award letter or offer, if it's not in letter form, that you receive from a college, what are the parts of it? What should you look for? Uh, what should you focus on? And some factors to consider when comparing uh, financial aid awards from different colleges that you've been accepted to. And then lastly, I want to talk about appeals a little bit. Uh, this is something that not everyone uh, goes through or is not a part of the process for everyone, but it's possible that you might need to make a financial aid appeal after receiving your award offers. And so I wanted to share a little bit about, you know, what might be the circumstances that would, um, that would validate making an appeal and maybe how to go about it. Just some, some advice and some tips. Okay, so let's talk about scholarships first. So what you need to know as a senior at this point, and at this point, it's November 17th, 2021, there have been two, um, you know, relatively major deadlines so far, November 1st and November 15th are common application deadlines. Um, and, you know, there's some more coming up. There's November 30th for the UCs and the Cal States. There's December 1st. A lot of colleges have an early action deadline or, or early decision or priority. 
uh, deadline on December 1st. And then, you know, there's plenty of January 1st, January 15th, and so on, uh, upcoming deadlines. So the reason I'm mentioning that is you are presumably working on applications. You've you've possibly already submitted some, and you may be thinking, you know, what else can I do right now? One of the things you can do is think about scholarships. And, the, you know, what what I'm what we'll get into is for some of them there's there might be a little bit of extra work to do but for some of them there might not it might just be a matter of um, submitting your application and waiting and seeing so let's talk about that a little bit so merit scholarships just to review what Rachel said they're based on your merit so uh, most commonly it has to do with academic performance your GPA um, SAT or ACT scores scores and some other types of tests and the rigor of your courses um, but it can be for other factors too. There are merit scholarships given for artistic talent or skill like performing arts scholarships for um, visual arts, for, uh, for dance, for music, um, for uh, film. Uh, so, you know, any, any of those areas of performing arts, you know, some schools offer specific merit scholarships for those things. Also for leadership, a lot of times for uh, volunteering, community service record, and maybe even for special achievement in the subject area. And some awards might take a combination of those factors. Um, now the majority of merit scholarships, as Rachel mentioned in her presentation, I believe the figure is somewhere around 90%. The majority of these merit scholarships are institutional, meaning that they're offered specifically by the college itself, and they're taken from the college's own funds. Um, so quick note about that, um, the institutions or, you know, the colleges and universities that tend to offer the most and the largest merit scholarships are typically private universities and colleges because they have larger funds from donors. You know, a lot of times that's alumni who, um, you know, are relatively wealthy and are able to donate for scholarship funds that, you know, basically to allow more students to be able to afford going there. Um, so, you know, that's one of the, the things that is sometimes a drawback about public universities is they can't offer as much in the way of merit scholarships, but it's offset by the fact that those public universities tend to have lower uh, cost of attendance, you know, so th there is a little bit of a um, of kind of a balancing act that you, you have to play and we'll see that uh, in regards to, uh, we're going to take a look at two sample award letters, one which is from a public university, one which is from a private college. Um, you know, to, to get a little bit clearer of a sense of, you know, how that can kind of upend your expectations sometimes. So institutional merit scholarships do tend to have the highest dollar values, and that's in comparison to private scholarships or outside scholarships, scholarships, which Rachel mentioned, and I'll talk about them a little more too. But um, the, the institutional ones tend to be the ones that give you the most money um, per year in total. There are some exceptions to that, and they're usually extremely competitive awards like the National Merit Scholars Program, which you have to qualify for based on how you perform on a, on a standardized test, which is the, the PSAT uh, NMSQT, which is actually the test that um, sophomores and juniors took at the Waldorf School uh, about a month ago in October. So um, there is a, a way that students will be able to qualify for something like that. Some of the other really competitive awards tend to be national things like National Merit Scholars. And, it, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's 
a lot of other students that you are basically competing with for those awards. So, oh, let's go back. So the uh, institutional merit scholarships, they usually don't require an additional application or an additional process to, to qualify for them. So this is good news for students a lot of times. Students love to hear this when, when I tell them. Uh, so you've applied to X college, you did it uh, you know, in time to qualify for maximum scholarship consideration you in a lot of cases don't need to do anything else. Um, by turning in the application by a certain date, you qualify for maximum merit scholarship consideration at that college. So most of the time, that's how it works. Um, you don't need to do anything extra. You don't have to write another essay. You don't have to fill out another application. That's it. Uh, just by applying to the college and doing it within a certain um, time frame. And importantly, I should also mention a lot of times it involves completing the FAFSA um, and or well and the CSS profile sometimes. Um, so that's it though. As long as you filed for financial aid in the in the general way, as long as you submitted your application completed um, in time, you qualify for max merit scholarship consideration. Some colleges have a priority deadline. Um, like USC is an example of that. Arizona State is another one. Uh, for USC, the deadline is December 1st. And for Arizona State, it's November 1st. And that priority deadline is when you want to submit your application by. The majority of the colleges do not. Uh, as long as you apply by the regular decision deadline, you would qualify for full merit scholarship consideration. Um, you might be wondering, so how does that work with early action if the college does early action and regular decision? You know, is it possible that all the scholarship funds would be gone by the time you apply in, let's say, January or February for regular decision? No, because financial aid offices intentionally um, earmark a certain amount of their funds for the second round of applications. So they're not going to give away all of their um, scholarship money for the first deadline. You know, for early action students. So if you're applying regular decision, as long as it's a college that does not have um, a priority deadline, you are fine. You're not going to miss out on any scholarship money. Okay, so um, there are exceptions. So some colleges do offer competitive scholarships that require an additional application and sometimes other supporting materials, which might include essays, a portfolio, a resume, uh, video recording, sometimes of you giving a speech or answering some questions, and maybe even an interview, either in person or a virtual interview. So this, this is a thing. Um, some colleges do offer scholarships that require you to do more. My advice is to work on this now, research the colleges that you're applying to that are on your list and see if they offer any scholarships that require you to do more. And that's something you can find out on the college's website. Um, you know, just go to the financial aid section of the website. If if you get lost in browsing and trying to click around, just Google it. Just do a search, um, uh, Chapman University Financial Aid, and the first link that pops up should be on the official website. Okay, another kind of uh, merit scholarship that is important to know about is uh, those that are offered specifically by departments. Um, so if you are applying for a specific major or program and you already know what that is, um, 
I would recommend looking into whether that department that you're going into at the you know different colleges you're applying to, whether they offer scholarships specific to that subject. Um, so for incoming freshmen, that is, because a lot of colleges will offer, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the norm for various departments to offer scholarships to students, but a lot of times those are for returning students. So you wouldn't necessarily qualify as a freshman. They would want you to put in a little bit of work in uh, your college classes first and basically based on how you do in your college classes you can qualify for a departmental scholarship so returning students and uh, these department scholarships are very common less so for freshmen incoming freshman students but not unheard of so they they are there are plenty of of these kinds of departmental scholarships freshmen can qualify for so if you know what you're what you're studying if you're not undecided and you, and you know you have your major that you're applying into that's something to look into as well um, research if departmental scholarships are available. My biggest tip for merit scholarships is to get to know your admission counselor, your regional admission counselor. Um, and the regional admission counselor is someone who focuses specifically on an area of the country. Um, and so what you'd want to do is find the one that covers California or because California is such a big state, a lot of times it's split into regions. So um, typically there will be like a Southern California counselor or even sometimes smaller subdivisions like Orange County and San Diego are grouped together a lot of times. So um, this is, again, another thing you can find out on the school's website. Uh, you can Google uh, Chapman University admission counselor, and it will typically take you to a page where you can locate the, the admission counselor for your area. It'll often have uh, an email, a contact email address for that person, and sometimes even a phone number. So my advice is reach out to that person, uh, get to know them, send an introductory email at this point. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with making part of your email. You know, maybe, maybe you want to do a uh, a first reach out email where it's just kind of polite and, you know, uh, you introduce yourself, say that you're applying, you're, you know, you're excited about the opportunity to go there, you know, if you get accepted and, um, you know, maybe share one or two of the things that you really like about that school. Um, and then maybe, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing it the first time, but maybe after the counselor responds, you can send them a follow-up email and, and ask if they can clue you into any additional scholarship opportunities. Um, a lot of times they can alert you to something that may uh, not be as easy to find on the website, let's say, and they can let you know, uh, you know, if you do this uh, or if you talk to this person, um, you know, you might be able to qualify for another scholarship. The departmental ones, for example, they might be able to clue you into um, something that you can apply for that, you know, is not easy to find on the website that has to do with the department you're applying for. Um, another thing that's good to know about what, um, what your regional admission counselor can help you with is they can be kind of an advocate for you. They can be someone who's in your corner who um, knows you, would recognize your name, and can stand up for you when it comes to making a decision about financial aid offers. So they can potentially um, put a good word in for you, basically, try to tip the scales, be the, the thing that, that um, influences the financial aid office to uh, award the scholarship to you when it's, when it's you know, a close decision and it comes down to um, to something like that. Um, and, you know, in addition to sending an email, I should mention a lot of colleges will allow you to schedule a 
virtual conference with the admission counselor. Um, if it's someone nearby in California, you might be able to even do an in-person meeting, but they will definitely, you know, at this point, make it available to have um, like just kind of an informal virtual meeting where you can get to know them, ask questions, um, you know, share a little bit about yourself, your, your goals. Um, and, you know, it's not the same thing as an interview, by the way, this is, it's not like, you know, this is something where, um, it could make or break your application. It could, if they, if they track demonstrated interest, uh, which is something that you can ask that admission counselor about, you know, is, is demonstrated interest a, a factor in your admissions process? And would you recommend any steps, uh, or anything that I can do to, to show my interest even more so, but, you know, aside from showing demonstrated interest, it's not that that would be an, an interview in the traditional sense, but it would be a good way to get to know them and to have them, um, you know, match a name with a face. And I think it really can help in, in that process of uh, financial aid awards. Okay, just a little bit more about scholarships before we move on. So outside scholarships, uh, Rachel talked about these a little bit. I just wanna reiterate some points and, and mention one or two other things. So these are offered by private donors and community organizations generally. These are private scholarships. They're not through specific schools and they're not through the government. Um, now, the thing is, these are usually much smaller amounts. So I have students and, and parents ask me about outside scholarships. You know, uh, how do I qualify for them? You know, what can I do to get more scholarships? I heard there's millions and millions of dollars of unclaimed money out there. That's partially true, but it's a little bit overblown and exaggerated um, because a lot of those scholarships are, you know, it's like, um, one or two scholarships offered and you know tens of thousands of people applying so the the ability to access those scholarships even if that money exists is a little overblown but it is good to know that it, it's another source of um being able to pay for college potentially of uh, free money so the thing to know or one thing to know is these are usually much smaller dollar amounts for these outside scholarships than the institutional ones uh, so you know again the the biggest merit scholarship awards are going to come directly through the college most of these private scholarships range from a few hundred dollars up to, you know, most commonly, I would say they seem to be around a thousand dollars each, two thousand um, dollars. And some of them are renewable, you know, so you can get it for all four years potentially. But the the actual dollar amounts are, are not making as much of a dent as you might hope. Um, and also, you know, as I mentioned, you're generally competing against a larger pool of applicants. Um, so they're very competitive in that sense. Something else that's important to know um, that's a little bit of a, a bummer is some colleges will actually deduct those amounts. So let's say you earn $5,000 in, you know, across three private scholarships. Um, I'm, not every college does this. It's something that, that you can find out. You know, this is, they're not going to be secretive about this. You can ask them. Um, but some colleges will take those amounts that you earn, they'll, they'll subtract that 5,000 from what they're offering you. Um, and, you know, so that's a zero sum game. You're not actually earning more, uh, for your, you know, being able to pay for college. It's the same amount as you would be getting from the college itself. Um, so just, just be aware that this is a practice that takes place, on, you know, some colleges. So not every college does this. And again, you can find out, um, you know, in advance if, if, if that's the case. If you happen to be applying for any private scholarships and you are concerned that they wouldn't add on, they would just, you know, zero out to what you're already going to be getting, um, talk to the college, um, call the financial aid office, send an email, you know, just reach out to them directly. 
So here's my general takeaway or advice when it comes to outside scholarships. They can be helpful if you need to cover smaller amounts. Um, you know, if you just need a, a couple thousand more to be able to afford a particular college, I mean, you know, that's not nothing. <laughs> it's definitely not nothing to me. Um, and those amounts can cover uh, room and board or not all of room and board, but they can cover part of it. They can cover your textbooks because, you know, here's something that uh, those of us who have gone to college kind of take it for granted now, but you may not be aware of this as a high school student. Um, textbooks in college, you have to pay for them. Um, and you own them at that point, but you know, you still have to pay for them and they're not cheap. They're not 10 or 20 bucks each. They're, they can be up to a hundred, sometimes even $200 for a single textbook. So that really adds up. Um, nowadays you can rent textbooks. I, I've done some of that myself, um, you know, in recent years, but you have to send it back when you're done. So you don't get to keep it, you know, later on. But, um, you know, these outside scholarships are not nothing. They can definitely help with some of those smaller expenses. They can chip away at the total cost of attendance. If you just need to make up a small amount, you know, they're really helpful. But just be mindful that you can't really count on these outside scholarships to pay for the full cost of attendance. You would have to put in so much effort as a student to earn, um, you know, enough of these outside scholarships to be able to cover the cost of attendance at, at really any university. Um, so they're, they're more like filling in the gap than they are paying for, for the whole cost of attendance. And then just uh, a couple more points, just to let you know, um, with that said, where you can find them. So what I would recommend is start with your local community. Um, so, you know, talk to your school. Um, I'm not sure who the, the contact person for this would be at, at uh, the Waldorf School, maybe um, maybe Gita Garrison or, or Shauna Forson. Um, that's definitely something I can, I can look into if anybody has any questions, but generally school uh, is one place to look if they have any. Also though, if you have a part-time job, if you're a student and you work, uh, talk to your employer or find out if they have a scholarship fund. Um, parents also, sometimes employers will uh, have scholarships that students can apply for. Also community organizations, you know, you, you can typically apply for scholarships. I've had students before, um, one of the most common ones is the, the Elks Club, um, has a scholarship that students can apply for, you know, every year. After that, you know, once you've started with, with who you know and, you know, who your family knows, the next thing I would do is try reliable scholarship search engines. Um, and these are ones that usually ask you to create a profile and enter some information about yourself and your academics and your interests and your, you know, activities. And based on that, they will provide matching results for you. So basically here are, you know, based on what you entered for your profile, here are some scholarships that you should qualify for. And from there, it's like, uh, you know, here's what to do if you want to apply. And then you just go and look at the requirements, the steps to apply, and then just follow through with the process if you would like to. So what these search engines do is they provide you options based on the, the profile that you create. These are the most reliable um, because there are a lot of scams. And this is you know, a good way to avoid scams. These are scholarships that are vetted by these reliable um, organizations. So a couple of these that, that are my favorites are FastWeb. Um, and then another one is Big which is uh, owned by the College Board. It's, it's their college uh, counseling website, let's say. Um, so those are both clickable links. We'll, we'll share these slides later on with you. Um, and those are both clickable links that you can go to visit those uh, scholarship search engines. And then lastly, just be wary of scholarship scams. 
a lot of the um, scam scholarships feel like advertising. Uh, you might get an email and it seems too good to be true, um, but they just feel really like, you know, <laughs> somebody's trying to sell me something, even though they tell you they're going to give you tons of money. You know, it's like, it's like in the, in the, you know, when I was growing up back in the day, the, the cliche was the person showing up at your door with a, with a big check, you know, and they're, they want to give you a million dollars. We all kind of learned that, they don't want to give you a million dollars, you know, it's a scam. Um, so just, you know, really be careful. If you're not sure if something is real or not, and you want to, you know, you want to vet it, you want to find out if it's reliable, I would recommend talk to your counselor about it. Um, you know, just let us know, we'll look into it for you and let you know. Okay, so that's scholarships. Now let's talk about award letters and offers a little bit. So I want to talk about loans First of all, just to uh, dive into a little more detail on them. So first of all, they are not gift aid. And what gift aid is, is what it sounds like. It's a gift. It's something that you don't have to give back. It's yours. Gift aid is made up of grants and scholarships. And grants are generally need-based. Um, they can be through the government or they can be directly through the school itself, the college or the university. Scholarships are more like merit aid. You know, they're, they're based on... Um, all the things that we mentioned earlier with merit aid. Um, these are the kinds of financial aid that don't need to pay, be paid back. They just give to you, you know, they're helping you pay for college. Loans do need to be paid back. Not only do they need to be paid back, but they accrue interest. So there's a certain percentage of the amount that you borrow that gets added onto it daily. And, you know, that amount, it's, it's a small percentage. It's usually somewhere from like four to 8% of it, but it adds up. So, um, just be aware that loans, you will probably be offered these if you have any need that's not covered by your financial aid awards. Um, and I want to talk about some things to, to know about them, you know, before making your decisions to accept loans. So federal loans, first of all, these are offered by the federal government. Uh, they always have a fixed interest rate. So in other words, the, the interest rate that you're given is, is they're not going to pull a sneaky move on you and increase it suddenly, you know, and, and not tell you, but require you to pay that interest down the road. They're fixed. So legally, they cannot change the rate. Um, so that's a good thing. They also don't require a parent to co-sign or you to do a credit check or a parent to, to do a credit check. So you just qualify for them automatically. There's two different kinds, uh, primarily for students. There's subsidized and unsubsidized loans, which I'll talk about on the next slide. The other type, big type of loans are private loans, uh, and these are offered by banks and credit unions, so you know, private institutions. These usually have higher interest rates than the federal, not always a fixed rate, um, so it can change over the life of the loan. And typically there's less leniency with deferring your loan, which deferring means pushing it off basically, waiting on it, uh, pushing it off into the future. So there's less leniency with how you can defer. And there's also less options for loan forgiveness, which means uh, you know, if, you've, if you've paid a certain amount and you show uh, that you're unable to pay the full loan, sometimes you can get that loan forgiven. So my opinion is that these private loans should really be a last resort. Uh, I would never say don't do it, but I would say think carefully, um, you know, really do some reflection, make sure that you're informed on, on what you are signing yourself up for. If you're a student and you're taking out private loans, or even if you're parents and you take out private loans, just, you know, be really mindful of, of what that's going to look like for your budget in upcoming years. Um, so in terms of the federal loans in those two primary types, so one of them is uh, uh, subsidized loans. So these are loans that don't 
accumulate interest while you're in college because the government pays that interest while you're in college. Um, they don't begin accruing that interest. The interest doesn't get added on to the amount until six months after graduation. And sometimes, you know, depending on your um, employment situation, after you graduate, you can sometimes get extra deferment. You can apply for that. Um, so now the thing about subsidized loans is you can't just say, I want more of these and not, you know, the ones that are just good. It, it depends on your financial need. So you have to qualify for them. Um, and it has to do with, you know, your FAFSA basically and your, your CSS profile, or I'm sorry, not your CSS profile, just your FAFSA. So it's fully based on, um, you know, family finances, uh, income and assets. The kind are unsubsidized loans, and these do accumulate interest while you're in college and after you graduate. These are not based on need. So these are loans that everyone can qualify for regardless of need. And usually you're going to get some combination of the two, um, unless, you, you know, unless you have a really high uh, expected family contribution or EFC score, then you will probably get uh, just unsubsidized loans. But typically it's a combination of the two. Um, you can choose not to accept the unsubsidized loans if you don't want to. Um, now, obviously, that's going to affect what you're how you're paying for college you know if you're not taking the unsubsidized loan um, you're going to have to find some other way to cover that amount uh, and a private loan would be uh, generally a worse decision than an unsubsidized federal loan because it would be at a higher interest rate and you know some of the other drawbacks that that we just mentioned um, so you know you can you can turn them down you can partially accept loan offers um, yeah so it's it's totally up to you so one other kind of federal loan um, that's mostly relevant for parents, uh, but good to know if you're a student as well, is the federal plus loans, PLUS. Um, so there are parent plus loans and student plus loans. Um, the student plus loans are only if you are in graduate school. So, you know, if you've already finished your four-year degree and you're going to earn a master's or a PhD, or you're going to medical school or law school, um, you can qualify for a student plus loan, but not if you're going in as a freshman. So for, for current seniors, this would not be relevant, but the parent plus loans might be. Now, these are loans that are very easy to qualify for uh, parents. You, you don't have to have perfect credit. As long as you're paying your bills reasonably on time, uh, you should qualify. If you're in bankruptcy, you will not, but pretty much every other financial situation, you will, you will qualify for these. Um, now, you can borrow up to full cost of attendance. So if a student uh, gets into University of Michigan, a very selective university that is public, but also has very high cost of attendance, it's around $7,000 a year. Um, now, if you're a California resident and you get in there and you don't have high need and you don't qualify for much in the way of merit scholarships, you can still go to University of Michigan if your parents take out a Parent PLUS loan for, you know, roughly $70,000 a year. Um, I don't recommend that, but it is possible. Um, the government will offer loans up to the full cost of attendance. Um, and those are the plus loans. Now, these have a higher interest rate than the subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Uh, not astronomically higher, but it adds up. Um, the subsidized and unsubsidized loans are around 3 or 4%. Um, the plus loans are currently 6%, and they can go up to 10%. That's the, the federal cap on the interest rate. Um, so they are higher. It's fixed from uh, during the school year but it can change from year to year. So it can increase if you take out a parent plus loan from freshman year to sophomore year to junior year and so on. Um, so just exercise caution with plus loans.
Okay, so let's uh, take a look at a couple uh, sample award letters. On the slides here, there's a link to a document that you can look at that has um, these two award letters and also some other terminology and, and advice that might be helpful. Um, so I'll also share that document with everyone in, in their my drive. Um, but I'm just going to get out of the slides here and uh, just show you these couple of award letters. So one of them is from a public university, the other is from a private university. So this first one is from CSULB, Cal State Long Beach, my alma mater. Um, so this is basically the standard format of what an award letter should look like. This template was provided by the government and it's intended to be used by every college. Not every college does, but it will give you something very similar and it should have all the same components to it. So first of all, let's look at the top. There's the expected family contribution up here two different uh, rows. One of them says based on FAFSA. One of them says based on institutional methodology. FAFSA is the federal government's method of calculating your expected family contribution, which again means how much you are expected to be able to pay per year for a student's um, cost of attendance. So this student's uh, FAFSA EFC was $3,963 a year. So that's relatively low. Um, the government calculated that this family can afford that much a year towards this student's education. So if you divide that by 12, that's you know just a little over $300 a month. Um, institutional methodology, there's nothing there, zero. And that's because uh, public universities don't use institutional methodology. They use uh, federal methodology. Private colleges do use institutional methodology typically, and they use the CSS profile to calculate that. So in this case, that's not a factor. It's just the, the 3,963 based on the federal methodology. Next, let's look at the total cost of attendance here for CSULB. Um, so adding up those different costs, tuition and fees, housing and meals, books and supplies, transportation and other education costs, the estimated cost of attendance is $24,916 a year. Um, estimated is a key word there because things like books and supplies, transportation, and other education costs are rough estimates. There's no way of knowing exactly how much that will cost for every student. So those are estimates. So they're estimating that it's going to cost you about $500 a semester for books. Um, and that kind of makes sense from what I was saying earlier, because, you know, think you're probably going to take five or six classes per semester for a full load, maybe four but a full load is usually 12 credits and uh, each, each class is usually three credits. So four times three would be 12. So you're not usually gonna go lower than four classes if you're full-time. So they're estimating that your books are gonna be around hundred dollars each or just slightly under. So these are pretty accurate estimates, even if they're not exact, but back to this total cost of attendance. So roughly $25,000 a year for Cal State Long Beach. Okay, let's go down to the next box over there on the left, scholarships. So, and then on the right, we have grants. So scholarships, zero. So this, this student was not offered any scholarships. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not unusual for public universities, especially the Cal States. They do not have large amounts of merit scholarship money to award students. Uh, even if you're a good student and you have really good grades and test scores. Uh, grants though, you can see that this student was offered some amounts. So the federal Pell Grant, the student was offered 2,395. Um, there is a cap. There is a limit on how much the government will award students um, in grants and loans. So that's not a huge amount, uh, but 
it's fairly typical for the Pell Grant. The institutional grants uh, you can see was $5,742. So that is from Cal State Lumberage. So that's Cal State saying, because you have financial need and you have a relatively low EFC score, we will give you, you know, $5,700 in need-based aid. So take those together and this student is getting $8,137 a year in free money. So all of the gift aid, which again is scholarships and grants, total, the gift aid for this student is $8,137. Let's go back up to the total cost, about $25,000, right? So what that means is next box down, college costs you will be required to pay. Uh, so net costs, another way of saying that. And as it helpfully defines here, net costs are the cost of attendance minus total grants and scholarships. In other words, this is what you're expected to pay. So for this student, it would be about 16,000 and change a year, $16,779 a year. So you may still be given more help by the government in the form of loans, which we just talked about a few minutes ago. This student was given uh, $5,500 a year in subsidized loans and $7,000 a year in unsubsidized loans. Um, zero private loan, zero institutional loan, um, and then offered zero in parent plus loan. Okay, so 12,000 $12,500 a year total in loans. That's what's being offered to this student. And in work study, uh, $0 a year is being offered. So in sum, what we're looking at here for this student is the family and the student are being expected to pay $16,779 a year to go to Cal State Long Beach and are being offered $12,500 a year in loans. And those are, those are both student loans, by the way. That's the student who would be paying that. So if you subtract $12,500 from $16,779, the student would still have, um, what is that, about 400, just slight, or I'm sorry, 4,000, slightly over $4,000 a year to cover. Um, and that's keeping in mind too, that those loans need to be paid back eventually. Okay, so let's look at another example. Let's skip ahead here. So this is a private university. It looks a little different, but it's got all the same parts to it. Okay, so in this case, this is Chapman University. And so Chapman uh, offered this um, to the student. First, the EFC is, was calculated as 4,439. So using the FAFSA and presumably also institutional methodology, the CSS profile, this student's EFC is higher. It's 4,439. And that can happen. You know, you can get different EFC scores from private colleges and universities than you would at public schools. Sometimes it's less though. It's not always like this where the private is more. So the total cost of attendance um, at, or these are direct costs even, so there's more than this, but tuition and student fees altogether at Chapman University are $57,214 a year. Um, scholarships and grants that are being offered make up $32,829. So a lot more gift aid at Chapman, significantly more gift aid. Now that brings the cost after that gift aid down to $24,385. And then the student is also being offered $9,500 in loans. So that brings the cost down to $14,885, again, after loans. So go back to the Cal State Long Beach um, 
award letter, the net costs were $16,779. For Chapman, the net costs, and this is not even including the indirect costs, which I'll get to in a sec. The direct costs um, were $24,385, and then the loans bring it down to $14,885. And then these indirect costs are uh, things that are not uh, fixed amounts. You know, these are the ones that can vary a little bit and are being estimated. So books and supplies, personal expenses, travel costs, and then lastly, off-campus room and board. Um, so that adds roughly another seventeen dollars or $18,000 to that amount per year. And then uh, here's actually a breakdown of what those scholarships and grants are and what the loans are. So if you are comparing these letters, you definitely want to take a look at, um, you know, obviously the, the gift aid is what it is and what they're offering to you is free. So there's no reason to say no to it. But when you're looking at the loans here, you can see the subsidized versus unsubsidized loans. How much would you be borrowing that accrues interest versus, versus how much does not accrue interest while you're in college? So comparing these two, what you want to do is get it down to what am I actually paying uh, out of pocket, you know, after that gift aid, how much of that is loans. And then after the loans are subtracted from what my net cost is, how much more do I just need to, to figure it out and, and find out ways to cover it. So that's, that's the big, one of the big considerations when you're comparing more letters. Um, now, I'm going to go back to the slides because I have just a few other points to think about. Um, in addition to what I just said. So some factors to consider here um, when you're comparing award offers. So which school offers the most in gift aid? So not loans, the ones that it's just free money. Which school offers the best types of loans and the best interest rates? Which school has the best opportunities for networking and the better job market? And that's because you, know, you wanna think about your ability to pay back those loans after um, you graduate. So think about your future career and your ability to get a job. That's Those are definite factors in um, weighing your financial aid offers and where you would be able to afford. Uh, where can you see yourself spending the next two to four years? If it's the more expensive choice, is it worth it basically to pay more? Which school has better options for off-campus housing? So safe and affordable off-campus housing. Which school has lower direct costs? And the direct costs, again, are the ones that are just fixed. So the tuition and the student fees. Which school has the lower amounts for that? And the reason that's important is a lot of times those indirect costs, you can, you can um, minimize how much you need to pay. So you can live at home if it's you know, something where you can commute or maybe a cheap apartment off campus. Or if you happen to have family in, you know, in a different area that lives close to a, another college that you might be thinking about going to, maybe you, know, you can... You can work something out where you can stay with them and you don't have to pay room and board uh, with textbooks. I mentioned renting, you know, you can buy used textbooks and a lot of times you can get older editions that, you know, don't go too old, but they tend to have a lot of the same content, you know. Um, so there are ways to lower your indirect costs. So it's good to know what the direct costs are and, and compare those. And then lastly, which school offers major and extracurricular opportunities that will best point you towards your career goals for the same reasons I just mentioned, you know, being able to get a job relatively soon after college. Uh, so I just want to do a little uh, visual exercise here, food for thought about taking out student loans. So this is for all you students out there. 
So you might end up uh, in an apartment like this after uh, you graduate. You know, you might be able to get a decent job and, you know, maybe you don't have to pay that much in student loans a month and you can live in a nice place, you know, that has a view like this. Maybe this is not your ideal of a, of a perfect apartment. To be honest, it's not mine, but it's very nice. You know, it's, I would definitely be happy in it. Or it might be something more like this. Um, so the reason I'm showing you this, these two pictures is when you think about taking out student loans, I really encourage you to think about the future. Think about how likely is it that you'll be able to afford paying off that student loan, uh, paying a chunk of your paycheck every, every month towards that student loan, because you are going to be expected to after that first six months after your graduation. Um, so if you're going into a field or expecting to go into a field where you think you'll be able to get a job pretty quickly after college, uh, you're going to a university that has good career resources, internships, um, co-op opportunities, and so on. Um, that's great. You know, you, it might be more feasible and safe for you to take out student loans and large amounts of student loans. If you are not sure if, you know, if you're going to school more for the passion of the academic subject and for academic curiosity, and you're a little more of a dreamer and more imaginative, and you're not sure about getting a job after college, really think hard about whether it makes a lot of sense to take out large student loans. Um, you know, as, as part of being able to pay for college. So I don't want to say too much more about that right now because we need to move on, but just think about that. Keep that in mind. So lastly, let's talk about financial aid appeals. Okay, so um, first of all, I want to mention the idea of professional judgment because this is the principle behind financial aid appeals. Um, why, what makes students think, what makes families think that they can even appeal? You know, like the what and first of all, what an appeal is, is if you've been awarded uh, a certain financial aid offer and it's just not enough and you would like to ask for more money. That's essentially what a financial aid appeal is. So the reason you can actually do that and it's worth doing and it might be successful is because of this concept of professional judgment. And what it is, is uh, a, a principle that allows college financial aid offices to use their own judgment to take a second look at family's ability to pay for college, to potentially reevaluate their EFC score, and maybe even offer more money. So this is something that's real. Uh, it's not made up. You can actually apply for um, these, um, for, for more funds, basically. You, you can actually put through an appeal, and it will be considered. So, But let's talk about this in a little more detail. So who should appeal? First of all, if you received an underwhelming financial aid offer that doesn't uh, do it, you know, that, that maybe means you can't afford to go to your dream school or one of your top choice schools. Then also, if you have specific valid reasons for why your initial offer should be reconsidered, which I'll get into, and also if you have concrete evidence of those reasons, then yes, that might be a good idea for you to appeal. And I would wholeheartedly recommend that you do so. So just to be clear, the most valid reason to appeal your financial aid award offer is uh, if your family experienced changes in income and or assets since the prior year tax returns. And that is because the FAFSA and the CSS profile use your prior year tax returns or your, you know, your family's prior year tax returns to calculate EFC scores. So for current seniors, they're going to use 2020 tax returns from last year. By the time you actually start going to college, it will be fall 2022. It will almost be 2023. So this is very outdated information in some cases. It may not be. You, your family may have a fairly stable 
fixed income and um, you know net worth from year to year, but there may be changes. And you know, we all know the pandemic was one of the biggest um, uh, financial disruptors in in recent years, and a lot of people have had changes in their uh, financial status. So that's that's the the most valid reason to appeal, though. We'll get into that a little more. Okay, so I want to give you a plan of action if you are considering a financial aid appeal. You know, I know that you don't have your financial aid offers yet, but down the road, if this is something that you end up thinking about, let me give you a few steps to take. So first of all, evaluate your offers, your complete financial aid offers from the colleges that you were accepted to. And one quick note about that. Uh, the financial aid offers are sometimes part of your acceptance letter. And other times they come shortly after, but it should not take that much more than a couple or a few weeks from when you get your acceptance. So once you have all those offers, um, evaluate them, determine how much more you would need to be able to afford that. It's important to, to come up with some exact numbers of what you need to budget it out. How much more do I need to be able to afford this for my son or daughter? Um, think about the financial scope of it though. So here's what I mean. If all you need, so it's kind of like the private scholarships. If all you need is a, a few thousand more to make up the difference, to make up that gap, uh, to be able to afford that, an appeal might actually work. Um, you might have a few thousand more dollars if you have evidence and a valid reason, you know, why your finances have changed. But if you need a big amount to be able to afford that school, like tens of thousands of dollars, the appeal is not likely to grant you that much money, um, even if you have significant difference in your finances, because colleges do allot a certain amount of their uh, financial aid for appeals. They do not allot huge, huge percentage of it. So there's going to be a little bit left to distribute at the end, but it's probably not going to be enough to, to make up the difference between, you know, uh, affording a $70,000 a year private school if you didn't get that much initially. Okay, next, uh, reflect on your reasons. So what are your concrete reasons for asking more? Here are some possible valid reasons um, that are listed out. So if changes in your family's income since the FAFSA data. Um, a major life circumstance that could affect finances like a, a divorce, a loss of job, uh, furlough, um, illness or death in the family, loss of residence. Any of those things could qualify. Paid medical expenses for one or more family members. This information I do not believe is included in the FAFSA or the CSS profile, um, but it's obviously a huge expense if, if you do unfortunately have to deal with, you know, paying medical expenses for a family member. Uh, so that's something that you can report in your appeal. Um, a one-time financial event that artificially inflates your prior year tax return figures. So if you had uh, inheritance or some kind of um, huge influx of money in a particular year, and that happened to be the year that you're filling out the FAFSA, um, that's going to look like you have more assets than you do on a typical year. So that's something that you can explain in your appeal. Expenses associated with uh, caring for a, another member of the family, extended family, uh, if there were errors in what was reported on the FAFSA, and then if you got higher financial aid offers from other colleges or universities. Um, that's something that I wouldn't count on too much from, but it is something that you can mention if you got a higher award, because colleges will sometimes uh, recruit students that they want to go there. And if they feel like there's a chance of losing it to another university, it's, it's possible they might offer you more financial aid to, to recruit you, basically, to get you to go there. Uh, next, what you want to do is get the evidence. So compile your supporting documents that will serve as evidence for your concrete reasons. 
Uh, so some things that might count as evidence, pay stubs that demonstrate that your salary has changed, um, a notice of being furloughed or laid off uh, from an employer, unemployment benefits reports, um, a sign note from a doctor or a social worker if you've had um, you know, health circumstances that, that change your income, and then just you know, anything else that could support your claims as long as it's from an unbiased source, someone else that can attest to the truth of what you're saying. Lastly, um, what I'd recommend doing is research the appeals policy or process at the college or university you're trying to appeal to. Uh, find out if they have an established set process for how to appeal. If they don't, traditionally uh, writing a letter, writing a formal letter is the way to go, is what I would recommend. Uh, you can also start out the process by calling the financial aid office, asking them if they have uh, any steps that you need to complete or what they would recommend if you would like to appeal uh, your financial aid offer. And then here's just a few tips if you're going to write or make an appeal to one or more colleges. Explain clearly what you're requesting and why your situation deserves for the consideration. So just be very straightforward, be very clear, be very specific, direct. Just tell them what's going on. Um, be specific and literal when citing the factors to support your reasoning. So that evidence that you're providing, make sure it's very clear and detailed. And also just tell them at dollar amounts. Don't, don't be shy about telling them that, you know, I would need $3,500 more to be able to afford this. Um, you know, be be direct, but also be respectful, obviously. Uh, um, don't come in angry. Don't come in with, you know, huge disappointment. Um, it's okay to to be honest about the fact that, you know, you're disappointed you wouldn't be able to go there, but but don't be rude about it. Uh, don't definitely don't come across as entitled. Um, you know, be respectful. They, they want to help you if they can't. They just can't always help you. Their hands might be tied, but if they can help you, they will. And then just lastly, I would say timeliness. So submit your appeal as soon as possible because they're gonna get more than one of these and they need to be able to evaluate them. And it is sometimes first come first serve. So um, if, if you realize that your financial aid offer is just not gonna be enough to cover the cost of attendance, um, submit your appeal as, as soon as possible. Um, a, a final word about appeals. So you may be worried that you're going to anger someone or you know poke the bear by doing a financial aid at college. You are not. Um, you're never going to lose that initial offer that they gave you. So that's just a baseline. You're going to have that at least. The financial aid appeal is just about trying to get more than that. So don't worry that by submitting the financial aid appeal, you're ruining your chance to get any money at all. It's not like that. They're not going to be mad at you and say, I can't believe they appealed and asked for more. Uh, there's no way they're coming to my school. They're, they're not going to do that. Um, so what that means is there's really no harm in trying honestly, um, but much to gain if, if it works. So it's a low risk, high reward situation. And for that reason, I would say, you know, if you are in a situation where it doesn't seem like you're going to be able to afford it, although I think you should have realistic expectations and know that in the majority of cases, these appeals are not granted, as long as you have valid reasons and you can provide some supporting evidence, there's a decent chance it will be. And so I would say, go for it. I would say there's no harm in trying um, go for it. And lastly, just if you're in doubt about appealing and or you need help crafting your appeal or figuring out what to do, talk to your counselor. This is definitely something that we can help you with. Thanks for listening. As we continue to produce episodes of this podcast, you can follow along on our website, www.strivetolearn.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes and don't forget to subscribe. As we're launching this podcast, we'd appreciate any support you can give, including likes, downloads, shares, and good reviews. Got something you want to learn about? 
Ask us questions in the comments or DM us on Instagram at Strive to Learn Tutoring. Get the latest updates in the college admissions world and be the first to receive exclusive offers when you subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, www.strivetolearn.com. Thanks for sticking around, and I'll see you next time.